Welcome back to the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings. I'd love to see you behind the scenes here at the show on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs, and always love to see you there. But to our episode today, and we welcome an incredible three-time entrepreneur now rocking the world of enterprise SaaS. And so with that, I'm thrilled to welcome Barvin Shah, founder and CEO at MoveWorks, the cloud-based AI platform purpose-built for large enterprises that resolves employees' IT support issues instantly and automatically. To date, Barvin has raised over $108 million with MoveWorks from the the likes of Mamoun Hamid at Kleiner Perkins, Arif Yan Mohammed at Lightspeed, Bain Capital, Sapphire Ventures, and Iconic, to name a few. Prior to MoveWorks, Barvin was the founder and CEO at Refresh, which was later acquired by LinkedIn, and then before that, founded Gazillion Entertainment, a company he scaled to over 300 employees. But before we move into the show today, I want to tell you a story that I'm sure most of you are well too well aware of. You've spent the last two weeks working on that big proposal. 14 days and 44 cups of coffee later, you're finally finished. The proposal's due by the end of the day, and it's seven minutes to midnight. Here's the problem. When you go to submit it, you find out that your corporate password just expired, you're locked out of your account, the IT team is fast asleep, and the clock is ticking. MoveWorks takes the suspense right out of this story. MoveWorks is an AI platform that lives on messaging tools like Slack and Microsoft Teams. You chat with their AI to unlock your account, to get access to software, to find troubleshooting answers, and more, wherever you are and whenever you need help. MoveWorks understands your request no matter how you phrase it, then autonomously resolves the issue in seconds. That proposal submitted within six minutes to spare. Check out moveworks.com to see how AI delivers instant IT support to employees anywhere and anytime. And speaking of seamless work there with MoveWorks, you have to check out Cordoba, the leading AI writing assistant built specifically for business needs in mind. These days, literally everyone within a company writes content. And because of this, it's hard for everyone to stay aligned and maintain consistency. With Cordoba, you can customize writing guidelines to your unique brand and get everyone at your company to write with the same style, terminology, and brand voice whenever and wherever they are writing content. For Sasta listeners, Cordoba is providing a 25% discount off the first year of their starter plan. You can sign up for a free trial and get this offer by visiting cordoba.com forward slash Sasta. And finally, we spend so much time lead sourcing, but fundamentally, the quantity of leads does not matter unless you can convert them. And one of the best ways to do that is to collect and display reviews from your past customers. That's where reviews.io come in. Reviews.io not only collects reviews from your happy customers, but it is also able to help you publish these reviews on Google and on your social media platform of choice. Reviews.io is a fully API-driven solution that can be fully customized around your company requirements, and Reviews.io is packed full of useful features, but one that I found the most useful is that they're able to tell me who my most powerful brand advocates are via the Reviews.io dashboard. Reviews.io is used by over 5,000 companies, including Brex, Opendoor, and Carfax, to name a few. As a special offer, Reviews.io is giving one month free, no risk to all listeners. Just use the promo code HARRY, that's H-A-R-R-Y. But now I'm very excited to hand over to Barvin Shah, founder and CEO at MoveWorks. Good, that's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Bobbin, it is so awesome to have you on the show today. As I said, I've heard so many good things from pretty much every board member of yours and investor, but especially Mamoon at Kleiner and Arif at Lightspeed. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Harry. Uh, first time caller, long time listener. Excited to be on the show today. I mean, my word, that is so good for my ego. But I do want to start today with some context. So tell me, Bobbin, how did you make your way into what I definitely think is the wonderful world of SaaS? But also, what was that founding aha moment for you with MoveWorks? So, you know, I grew up in Silicon Valley here in the Bay Area. My parents immigrated in 
the late 60s, was exposed to technology from a very early age. This endeavor with MoveWorks is my third company. My last company was in the mobile productivity space called Refresh.io. We were acquired by LinkedIn about five years ago. You know, MoveWorks came about through a very deliberate process, a process by the four of us founders to understand where we could use machine learning in a very useful and impactful way in the enterprise. And the journey sort of took us to a conversation with over 30 CIOs and IT leaders and analyzing a bunch of their IT tickets before taking our first bit of capital. The discovery was that there's now about a billion knowledge workers worldwide, and each of those knowledge workers submits about one ticket a month. But those tickets still take three days to get resolved. And so we saw billions of dollars being spent on better ticketing systems, better automation tools, which the world definitely needed. But these tickets were still relatively slow. And when we dug into the details, what we realized is that they're still written in natural language. And so no one had taken the approach of trying to solve the tickets directly by understanding and building machine learning frameworks to read these tickets and then solve them completely autonomously. And so that's been our journey. How do we go from three days to three seconds? Absolutely. And it's been an incredible journey to see those since then. I, I do just, sorry, I'm too intrigued not to ask. You mentioned the two prior companies there. How did that experience with those two prior companies impact your operating mindset today with MoveWorks? My career has involved a variety of different industries. I started off in the toy business. I went into the gaming world and it went into mobile productivity and then now into enterprise SaaS. And if I could do it all over again, I would have done enterprise SaaS from the get-go. It's a domain that I really enjoy and I think I thrive in. But along the way of company building, I think you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about what matters, how you build culture, how you build teams, how you listen to customers, how you don't listen to customers. A lot of different factors went into this. But when it came down to MoveWorks, there was a variety of different viewpoints that each of us founders were bringing to the table. I had spent a bunch of years thinking about how to make people productive on mobile, how to leverage that platform. Druin, my co-founder, was at Facebook building machine learning tools, but specifically chatbot tools that were being used to optimize and improve the interview process for hiring managers. They could talk to a bot about who they were interviewing, etc. Jung, my other co-founder, was at Google. It was one of the founding engineers of the question-answer system that shows those paragraphs at the top of the Google search results, basically doing NLP on the fly and then figuring out what to show you, which is very important to our product today. And then Vibov, who had also been a serial entrepreneur like myself, building large enterprise-scale systems. So I think a lot of these perspectives came together in a way that allowed us to all build from there and build this company. I mean, it's such a unique blend of both backgrounds and skills associated. And so, I mean, just the stellar of stellar teams. I do want to ask, though, because if we start on kind of the most important topic that's actually at the front of every single portfolio founder of ours's mind, it's the obvious move to remote work and the rise of work from home. You're on the front lines of this movement. And as you said there about speaking to CIOs, you speak to CIOs across all verticals, really, making the switch to work from home. So I guess the first question is, what are the core challenges IT teams face as a result of having to move to fully remote pretty much overnight? You know, there's so many challenges. And I think as the weeks go by, some of these challenges are getting solved. But initially, connectivity, VPN issues, bandwidth, access, policies, procedures. Related to all this is support. And that's our world here at MoveWorks. Now, what's interesting is if you read the news, which everyone is doing right now, you hear a lot about bars closing, schools closing, gyms closing. But one thing that you don't hear about is the fact that every walk-up bar in the enterprise is now shuttered. It's closed. We're not able to go into the office anymore and walk up to someone in IT and say, hey, can you fix this for me? And so overnight, IT teams have had to shift their strategies and deploy things like messaging platforms, remote confin and webinar tools, digital channels for IT support, and a lot of other systems to ensure that workers working from home are staying productive. And the data, as part of the challenges that we're seeing them face, we're seeing a 500% gain in 
requests that employees are making for video conferencing apps like Zoom. We're seeing the demand for IT support services double. We're seeing two to three X the number of troubleshooting tickets come into the help desk. And so the good news is there's lots of good solutions. There's a lot of companies that want to help here. But the real test that's going on right now is whether IT teams can put these systems in place in a matter of days and weeks, not months or years. Kinas, you've seen a variety of different rollouts, so to speak, from the IT teams themselves. When you think about kind of perfecting the infrastructure stack and process of these rollouts, where do you see many maybe make mistakes and go wrong in really transitioning to work from home effectively? Yeah, you know, I think what we're seeing is it's mostly about speed. I think a lot of IT teams were thinking that they would make these changes over the course of several years and manage change management accordingly. I think the ones that are moving quickly now to pick up best of breed, best practices and roll it out are finding that employees are quite receptive. Employees are able to make switches very quickly. I think we're all seeing this. I've got kids and overnight they're all switched to now doing classes over Zoom. Even my kids' taekwondo and gymnastics classes are doing them over Zoom. So I think that where people believe that people can't change, I think ends up getting them stuck in deliberation and where they know that they make the change, people will adjust. Those groups are winning. The one thing I'll say though is you are seeing kind of a shift in terms of the economy. While many businesses are shuttering and slowing down or weakening, there is a new type of economy, a new type of business that is starting to see more traction and or thrive in this environment. And that is for businesses that are helping employees and individuals get work done anywhere and anytime. And I think that's something that we're seeing play into our business and in general, the world of SaaS. But one thing I'm really intrigued by is like, is this a flash in the pan momentary realization from traditional large incumbents and enterprise that obviously fundamentally by law, they have to be work from home and then it will revert back to their traditional standards of practice and work? Or do you think this is actually fundamentally a shift in how society operates with regards to its relationship to work? Yeah, I think it's the latter. And here's our experience. So when we started the company, about 20% of CIOs that we talked to had a enterprise-wide collaboration slash chat strategy, right? They'd be going with Slack or Microsoft Teams or Glip or Gchat, etc. Last year, that percentage was about 50-50. 50 had adopted something, 50 were still figuring out when to deploy a new tool and how to go about doing that. That debate is over. Basically, the next two months, every company in America is going to have decided and implemented one of these tools. And if you've used these tools in enterprise, like once you start using them, it's very, very hard to go back. And I think for us, we made an early bet in this world of enterprise chat being a big deal and being something that would overtake traditional means of communication like email. And so we see that happening in our personal lives with WhatsApp and and SMS and everything else. Why not in the enterprise? And so this is actually causing that shift to occur very rapidly. And people will start to see the utility of this. I think through chat, the UI is very intuitive for everyone. (laughs) It's not one that we have to learn. We're all familiar with writing. We're all familiar with communicating. And so it allows us to have more interactivity. It allows us to simplify work streams, basically work at real time. So I think this is a permanent shift, even when we do go back to the office building. You mentioned the kind of early bet that you place in terms of the market itself and its transition. I have to ask, because it wasn't, I mean, now it seems inherently obvious, but it wasn't at the time and it was early. Why did you gain such conviction as opposed to other channels of support like email and voice? And what led that decision-making conviction? Yeah, it's a good question. We are a conversational AI company and there's a variety of ways that you can obviously engage in conversation. I think that enterprise messaging for us provided a lot of affordances that just made sense if we wanted to provide support to employees. So just going back to the behavior, right? Employees submit on average about one IT ticket a month and it takes about three days for them to get results. 
solved. Now, there are portals, there are self-service catalogs and things that people can use. But when you only have an issue every few weeks to a month, you don't really know how to navigate those. Those UIs are sort of wrought with friction. And email obviously had its inherent delays as well, and it's not real time. And so what we wanted to do was find a way that employees could just do what's intuitive, which is shoot off a quick note and send it off to IT through a chat and have that picked up and have that resolved. But more importantly, by doing it in the enterprise collab tool, we could get their attention because they're already checking that tool a hundred times a day, collaborating with team members on projects, checking updates, et cetera. So we wanted to find an interface that allowed for that high volume, high frequency. And we just didn't necessarily see that with voice. And of course, email has been clogged for years and we can very effectively find people on their mobile devices, on their tablets, on their laptops with these new messaging platforms, which really does a lot to help improve our engagement and overall resolve more tickets for those employees. You said that about engagement and you also said that about kind of the three-day ticket resolution kind of being the standard. I'm really interested because I always think the definition of what success looks like is crucial and metrics are often kind of fundamentally quite uniform across industries and verticals. What metrics do you use to define success today? And I guess, why do you focus on those specific metrics over others? Yeah, so until recently, I think SaaS has been mostly focused on the delivery model of the software, right? To go from your data center to the cloud, which that itself led to some new metrics that have been used for a greater part of a decade, which is to measure active users. And it's pretty logical, but the problem with active users is it doesn't really tell you how much value you're getting. And so I think for us, we've been charging forward in kind of a new way of energizing SaaS in so much as we're taking ownership of the actual end-to-end results. We're doing the implementation, the configuring, but we're also looking at how many tickets did we resolve for each customer. And so that is the metric that we picked. It's got perfect alignment between us and the customer. How many tickets did MoveWorks resolve yesterday at Broadcom? How many tickets did MoveWorks resolve yesterday at Nutanix? And we measure that, our customers measure that, and it allows us to focus on whatever might be the case to make those metrics better. Sometimes that's engagement. Sometimes that's an additional integration that we need to do. Sometimes that is triggering some other automation that the customer might already have. But the goal ultimately is to provide more workload relief for the IT teams by having a system like this resolve more and more tickets. So for us, the alignment is at a higher order around what was our output, what was the results of our system each day, each hour. Can I ask, I'm on the board of many companies that face the challenge of kind of change management. In a normal world where services, revenue, and in-person visits, meetings, seminars are possible, change management is still fundamentally a challenge. In a remote world, how does change management change? And does it get inherently more difficult given the lack of physical services that one can provide in terms of coaching, training, seminars to really allow for a smooth transition? Well, I think that's absolutely right. What I see a lot of, especially in our own experience of using other SaaS tools, there's a heavy burden placed on the customer to learn the tool, to implement the tool, to train the employees on how to use the tool. And only then do you actually see the full value of what was created. With our product and something that we strive for is how do we take more and more of that work off the plates of our customers and how do we give them more value right out of the box? And so sometimes it's not just us delivering a set of tools. I mean, I always think of this analogy like Home Depot. A lot of enterprise SaaS mindset is, hey, let's just give someone a tool and have them go figure this out or extract value from it. At Home Depot, you go buy your tools to go do whatever home improvement project you want. Maybe you're building a birdhouse. Maybe you're building an extension to your living room. It doesn't matter to them as long as you bought their tools. For us, we actually want to provide you with the end result of what you're looking for. If you want that living room extension, let's go build that 
and give you the keys when it's ready so you can walk in and enjoy it. And so from our standpoint, the customer success motion, the engagement that we have with customers is not just about improving our machine learning to understand yet another type of ticket utterance or language pattern, but it's sometimes us adding a new integration into a backend system. Sometimes it's us showing those customers how to clean up an old process or to change a system of record. All of that is so that we can track and show that progress with each customer. And that metric gives us the ability to know where we stand. And that's something that's very intrinsic with what we do. It really, it's about customer success being the company success as we build this out. Can I ask, in terms of both customer success and I guess also marketing, but in terms of like horizontal application, this is not a vertically specific tool and it's so horizontal across so many different industries. How do you think about effective marketing and customer success given the inherently different use cases, applications, and kind of challenges that different verticals will face with it? So one of the premises that we had when we founded the company, and this was insight that we derived by looking at IT ticket data, was that IT was homogenizing globally. What does that mean? That means that and largely due to SaaS products, right? People had the same tickets that they were solving every morning about Zoom, GoToMeeting, WebEx, or BlueJeans, about MacBooks, Dells, Lenovo's, or HP's. And so as a result, we found ourselves really excited about the opportunity to solve this problem because everyone was experiencing the same problems. So we could build machine learning models at scale that could resolve it out of the box upfront for our customers. And so while we have customers in pharma and semiconductor and other high tech and retail and services, we have the same types of tickets. And so as a result, our customer success team works broadly across all customers, but we're solving the same issues. Organizationally, we put customer success and product into one org because it's not just important to build a feature and then deliver it to a customer. It's about building that feature, delivering it, and then seeing how much value it delivers and figuring out what needs to happen on our side, on the customer side to maximize that value. So there's a variety of metrics that we track from a customer success standpoint. But in a sense, it goes back to this core drumbeat heartbeat that we have at the company, which is everyone in the company gets a daily report. And every morning we all look at it and it tells us how many tickets we resolved yesterday at Broadcom, how many tickets yesterday did we resolve at AppDynamics, at Nutanix, at Freedom Financial. And for me, I get that report every morning, but others in the company are looking at that every hour, every few minutes to understand really what is the impact that we're having and what can change and evolve as a result of knowing that. Can I ask, you said that about CS, like sitting actually with product. Do you engage with like a product post-mortems and what do you do to weave that very tight fabric between product and CS, like strategically other than sitting together? The journey of building a product or a feature inside of our company is perhaps different than others. So instead of it being kind of a top-down motion of the market saying, build this use case, and then the product marketer sort of figuring out the details of that going down to a product manager, going down to an engineer, it's actually quite the opposite. The engineers are looking at ticket data every day. And they're saying, hey, there's these tickets, these 300 tickets we skipped at this customer today. What can we build? What kind of machine learning models? What kind of integrations can we build to solve that? And that leads to further research, further discovery, customer conversations, and ultimately ties into, well, what's the impact going to be? Are we going to increase overall customer resolution by 5%, by 2%? Great. Let's go do that. Let's put that in the next quarter's product plan. So today we're resolving between 30 and 40% of all tickets on average across customers. And that didn't just happen overnight, right? We were two years ago bragging about three to 5%. And over time, the analysis of ticket data, the understanding of how customers perceive that value, but ultimately building these features, it's not a black box 
box. It's not one of these things where we build them, then we market them, and then we sell them, and then we all pray that people will buy it. It's something that's a lot more fluid and a lot more certain before we even start writing the first line of code. Gosh, the joy of doing the shares, I can take the conversation in any way I want. You said there about kind of the improving efficiency of the resolutions there. It made me think, you know, we chatted before the show about information network effects with regards to podcasting. When you think about network effects with MoveWorks, is there not data network effects where every subsequent ticket actually improves the efficiency of the subsequent thousand tickets, building kind of higher efficiency and resolution speeds? A hundred percent. And I think that's something that we haven't seen a ton of in the enterprise world. In traditional settings, if I buy a database and you buy a database, the same database, (laughs) the database doesn't get smarter because we're both using it. For us, we are absolutely benefiting from that. And our customers are too. I mean, think of different forms of AI. You hear about in the academic circles, weak forms of AI, which are basically making a prediction or a suggestion or better ranking things. So then you have strong forms of AI that are trying to take entire problems and solve them end to end. A level five self-driving car is a strong form of AI. We're sort of like that in the IT world, right? You want a self-driving car that's been driven a million miles before you get into it or a billion miles. With us, Similarly, our product has seen now over 70 million tickets and we keep processing them. We keep getting better. We keep understanding okay, what actions need to be taken for this kind of language pattern, what actions need to be taken for this others. And so we are getting better. What that means is a variety of things. One is customers who become new customers of ours, in which today we're doing almost one customer launch every day, a large enterprise. They're seeing immediate time to value. Like the first day, we might resolve 20% of their tickets. The first week, we might resolve 30% of their tickets. So they don't have to wait around for six months, a year. And that's where I think we're breaking from the traditional SaaS model where you have a toolkit, you have a lot of professional services that get attached to it, and then you configure it, that's custom, and then you sort of see the results. You sort of can't get to the same results that we have with machine learning because we're able to aggregate, but also we're able to learn very quickly and to your point, have this true network effect, which ties into the homogeneity and it ties into a lot of other factors, which really gets down into how did we and why did we start this company? This is is exactly why we thought of all these things. These things were somewhat still hard to figure out how we we're going to achieve, but the concepts were there, and that got us very excited. Can I ask, thinking of kind of large enterprise and some of their challenging requests, do you ever get pushback on the data sharing between companies in terms of allowing you to provide better efficiency across the client base because of the knowledge sharing and data sharing that allows you to do so? Yeah, so security is super important to us from the get-go. Very early on, we made investments to ensure that we could keep customer data separate and not co-mingle data, but at the same time, build machine learning understanding across ticket data so that when we learn something in one environment, we can leverage it in the next. So we do a lot of abstraction, tokenization, things that keep what's proprietary, proprietary, but also allow us to more generically learn from that. Our customers review that with us. We go through extensive discussions around how we handle that. And for the most part, I think people are starting to come around to the fact that they want an AI system (laughs) that has been trained, that has learned that delivers value out of the box. Because if you've been tracking a lot of this AI space, there's a lot of AI initiatives that crash and burn six months later, a year later. And it's because these things are very hard to stand up on your own. They're very hard to maintain. They're very hard to make smarter and evolve. And so the real benefits of going SaaS with AI is that you get all that benefit right up front and you get that continuous improvement over time. So that's how we're seeing it. And our customers are excited about getting those results 
without the kind of effort that they would normally have to put into it. We may be diving a little bit into the ML world here, but I am just interested. Have you noticed there's this kind of asymptotic moment of data ingestion, really, where there's kind of decreasing efficiency with every additional data set? Because once you hit 70 million, there must be some moment of asymptote. Does that make sense? And how do you think about that? Yeah, so instead of thinking about it as one machine learning model and a monolithic kind of concept of 70 million tickets going into one model, think of it as thousands of models. Think about it as hundreds of techniques. Think about it as different capabilities. And so today we've seen so many tickets, but we're not solving 100% of tickets. In fact, we think the asymptote of tickets that can be resolved rises up to about 85 to 90%. There's still some tickets that we will always have to use people to better understand. You know, sometimes people are very vague in their tickets. It's like, hey, you know, I just got back from Hawaii and everything's broke. Can you help? <laughs> well, in that case, they really just want a hug from IT or they want someone to, to give them support. So it's not intended for a machine to solve. But if you think about it from how we've gone about this is we've stitched together a framework of looking at all the intents in IT, all of the sort of entities that we see in IT, and we're building machine learning models to understand every intent entity pairing that's out there. But as a result, it isn't just a singular effort. We have to constantly review these things. We have to have uh, human annotators that look at thousands of tickets a day and see, are our models drifting? Are our models getting overfit? Do we have to inject noise into the training data? There's a lot of other factors that go into this that we work on to ensure that this stuff works. But to your point, absolutely, models, techniques are evolving very rapidly. And we see models peak in performance all the time. And so this idea that there's one model and you just train it once and it's modeling as a service that you bring it back and you use it, forget about it. We're changing stuff so often that sometimes we'll remove entire sets of models and retrain them. Some get retrained on a continuous basis, some on a weekly basis, some on a monthly basis. Some don't get retrained until we have a committee meeting. But it's all towards the goal of what I've been saying this whole time, which is one metric. How many tickets do we resolve across all customers? How many tickets do we resolve across these customers? And that drives our behavior. Well, I mean, I could clearly chat to you all day about data asymptotes within machine learning models. So uh, I think it's best we move on to the 60-second quickfire round, Bavin. I say a short statement and you hit me with your immediate thoughts. Does that work well for you? Sure. So it's a war for talent, as we always hear. What's the hardest role to hire for today and why? That's easy. Machine learning infrastructure. I think with machine learning systems, they're both computationally and memory intensive. And so the challenges are just intense and finding people with that experience is really hard. What's the biggest challenge about your role today with the company and with MoveWorks? We're going through fast growth and I think nailing forecasting is still an art. Still figuring that out. Sometimes we overshoot, sometimes we undercall. And, you know, I think that's something that we're all focused on now, especially as we're seeing everyone work from home and how to right size our investments accordingly. Sorry, this is kind of off schedule, but how do you think about transparency within the org, especially with regards to goals? Because you want people to drive towards them and you want to set ambitious goals, but you also don't want to set too ambitious goals that people will be discouraged by if they don't hit them. How do you think that balance of ambitious, but not discouraging if not hit? One of the folks that I had a chance to recently meet is Rob, the CEO of Coupa. And he has hit his target as a company, I think for something like 44 quarters. It's some larger than 40 quarters in a row. That is a hero. <laughs> that is someone who has really figured out the right balance of making sure that you set a goal and that you hit it, even through good times and bad times. And I think that is super important. I don't have a specific answer other than you do want to strike that balance and the transparency is key. And so, you know, the good news is, is for us, a lot of our stuff is inherently transparent, just given our product. And even today, later today, I'm going to be reviewing the operating plan for the year with the team based on what we're seeing now change in the market. And I think it's just keeping everyone updated and keeping everyone tuned in to the same channel. 
What's the biggest area where investors have actively helped you and really moved the needle for the company? CIO introductions. Investors seem to know every CIO out there and their help with prospecting is huge. If you could change one thing about the world of SaaS today, what would it be? I think increase expectations from SaaS products. You know, it's like, let's hold ourselves more accountable for the outcomes and deliver real results. Instead of just being a tools provider and making customers do the heavy lifting, let's give them solutions. I think that's something that I'd love to see the world of SaaS talk more about. Hit me. What's the next five years for you and for MoveWise? Can you paint that vision for us? Yeah, so we're doing IT today, but our goal is to go into many other domains and departments. I think ultimately, if knowledge workers need help, we want to be the company that solves it for them. And I think we're on that journey and we're super excited by the reception so far. So we'll keep plowing ahead. Bob, and as I said, I had so many good things, as I said, from Mamoon, from Arif. So thank you so much for joining me today. And I'm so enjoyed chatting. My pleasure, Harry. And these are obviously challenging times, but uh, it's been fascinating to see how SaaS apps and other products like that or like MoveWorks are allowing folks to stay connected from afar. I have to say, I really could not be more excited for the time ahead with MoveWorks. And if you'd like to see more from Barvin, you can find him on Twitter at Barvinator. I do love that username. <laughs> Likewise, it'd be great to see you behind the scenes here. You can do that on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. But before we leave you today, I want to tell you a story that I'm sure most of you are well too well aware of. You spent the last two weeks working on that big proposal. 14 days and 44 cups of coffee later, you're finally finished. The proposal's due by the end of the day, and it's seven minutes to midnight. Here's the problem. When you go to submit it, you find out that your corporate password just expired, you're locked out of your account, the IT team is fast asleep, and the clock is ticking. MoveWorks takes the suspense right out of this story. MoveWorks is an AI platform that lives on messaging tools like Slack and Microsoft Teams. You chat with their AI to unlock your account, to get access to software, to find troubleshooting answers, and more, wherever you are and whenever you need help. MoveWorks understands your request no matter how you phrase it, then autonomously resolves the issue in seconds. That proposal, submitted within six minutes to spare. Check out moveworks.com to see how AI delivers instant IT support to employees anywhere and anytime. And speaking of seamless work there with MoveWorks, you have to check out Cordoba, the leading AI writing assistant built specifically for business needs in mind. These days, literally everyone within a company writes content. And because of this, it's hard for everyone to stay aligned and maintain consistency. With Cordoba, you can customize writing guidelines to your unique brand and get everyone at your company to write with the same style, terminology, and brand voice whenever and wherever they are writing content. For SASTA listeners, Cordoba is providing a 25% discount off the first year of their starter plan. You can sign up for a free trial and get this offer by visiting cordoba.com forward slash SASTA. And finally, we spend so much time lead sourcing, but fundamentally, the quantity of leads does not matter unless you can convert them. And one of the best ways to do that is to collect and display reviews from your past customers. That's where Reviews.io come in. Reviews.io not only collects reviews from your happy customers, but it is also able to help you publish these reviews on Google and on your social media platform of choice. Reviews.io is a fully API-driven solution that can be fully customized around your company requirements, and Reviews.io is packed full of useful features, but one that I found the most useful is that they're able to tell me who my most powerful brand advocates are via the Reviews.io dashboard. Reviews.io is used by over 5,000 companies, including Brex, Opendoor, and Carfax, to name a few. As a special offer, Reviews.io is giving one month free, no risk to all listeners. Just use the promo code Harry, that's H-A-R-R-Y. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I can't wait to bring you another fantastic episode next week.